Welcome to the Project Horse Podcast. We're making advanced horsemanship accessible, sharing down-to-earth training advice and practical exercises with horsemen dedicated to accomplishing their goals. Whether you're hitting the trails for fun, training a project horse at home, or refining maneuvers for reining or cowhorse competition, we'll help you take your horsemanship to the next level. Thank you for joining us. This is Jake and Luke Lundahl with Lundahl Performance. We want to thank you for joining us here on this Q&A and discussion segment. We're also joined by Anna, and um, the reason we have her on is because as more of a beginner, somebody that's newer to horses and that's been learning the ropes, she's brought a lot of interesting questions to our attention from the perspective of more of a beginner. Things that, Luke, you and I are kind of known for taking for granted. We often gloss over but it's relevant stuff and important things that we wanted to talk about because we spend a lot of our time talking about real tactical stuff, very advanced training concepts. You know, we try to have a good mix, but she has a, some good insightful questions as well. So Anna, thank you for joining us here. Thank you guys. I appreciate it. Now you had brought to my attention um, one of the topics you thought was maybe silly, but when you asked this question, I thought it was really good to start off with which was you were talking about two eyes versus two heels. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Um, one of the things that confused me about horse training was um, the fact that having the horse's butt facing you is disrespectful. And I never thought of it that way before. And so I was just kind of wondering, okay, what context is that acceptable and what is it not acceptable? Like if I'm cleaning a stall and the horse turns around so his butt's facing me. How do I handle that? Is that worth correcting? Or if I'm lunging him and he, and he turns... And his butt, you know, faces me for a second or two. Is that worth correcting kind of thing, I guess? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think the, you know, the short answer to that is the cliche saying two eyes is always better than two heels. Um, or the other saying two heels for lack of attention and disrespect, two eyes for attention and respect. So, you know, a good analogy, um, one of the first ones that I heard myself that kind of, uh, you know, cleared it up a little bit for me or got the ball rolling was the analogy of like a child um, sitting in a schoolroom. Okay, so just on the training side of it, disrespect side apart just for a second, like backtrack to just the foundation training wise. If I don't have a horse that's looking at me and giving me two eyes, I can't teach him anything. If I do not have his attention and his respect, then everything that I teach him is going to go in one ear and out the other. Because he's not focused on me and he's not going to be receptive to what I'm trying to tell him. Like if I have a student, if I'm a teacher and I have like a third grader um, and they're sitting at their desk and there's a big window uh, in the room and they're looking out the window at the butterflies and the guy mowing the lawn. Well, it doesn't, I could be the best teacher in the world, but those kids are going to fail when it comes to the, you know, end of the year test because they didn't learn anything because I didn't have their attention and their respect. It doesn't matter what I'm writing on the chalkboard. If they're not going to be looking at me and being attentive in the lesson, then they're just not going to grasp the information. And at the end of the year, we're going to basically reap what we sow and I'm going to have a crappy product in, in this child's education. Well, it's the same thing with our horse. If I just in the sake of training the horse, if I'm lunging the horse or, say, working on different groundwork maneuvers and the horse is looking to the outside when the horse is lunging or we're just standing still and the horse is turning and off with the fairies looking around at what's going on, well, it doesn't matter how, what I teach him in the session. 
when you come back the next day, it's almost like you start over at ground zero because you, you didn't have the horse's attention and therefore nothing that you were teaching him got through his head. I know myself in the early days, I would watch the videos and read the books and all this stuff and I'd go out at the arena like fired up. Like I'd spend the evening reading and like studying and just get all amped up and just, you know, I couldn't get myself to bed because I wanted to go right out and try it all. But I was like, force myself to go to sleep. Next day, I get out to the arena. I'm all fired up. I like, I'm like armed with all this knowledge. I'm like, yeah, get ready, Horace, because I'm coming <laughs> for you. Well, then we get out to the arena and we do all this stuff. And I mean, the, the session goes fairly well, at least in my mind. And we do all this, all these different exercises, introduce some new stuff. And then we put it all to bed and I, you know, I walk back to the house, like strutting around, like I'm this, you know, champion trainer. Um, the next day I come out and grab them again to go review. And it was like, we started over again. It was like every day we were just this uphill grind. And it seems like every day that we'd make like two steps forward by the end of the session, those two steps were gone the next day. If not, we'd lost even another step, you know, it's like two steps forward, three steps backward. And I couldn't figure out what it was. Well, I had my program once I went to my first apprenticeship. It was kind of like a massive audit for my own program or for me as a horseman. And I began to realize that in those sessions, that horse, a.k.a. like that that student, was constantly just staring out the windows, just had this glossy look in their eyes. And they were just looking everywhere but at me. I'd, you know, I'd back the horse up and the moment I'd stop backing him up, he would just almost like he was a robot, just crank his head left or right and go look off with, you know, at, at a car passing on the highway or something. When I'm lunging the horse, he's got his head cranked around to the outside. You know, it's a, it's, it's a miracle that he even saw me even once in the whole, you know, three hour session that I was working with him. I, you know, I don't even know if he ever did see me for crying out loud. So it was a big lesson than getting to go to my first apprenticeship and see how just changing the element of my program of, hey, I need two eyes. When I'm with you, you have 23 hours of the day to mess around in your run, in your stall, whatever. The hour that I'm working with you, the least you can do is just look at me and give me your attention and respect. And just that little change in my program went a huge, like, went so far in a better product overall, like with my horse and just staying power of my exercises. Just that little bit of, hey, two eyes, not not two heels, not half an eye, not three quarters of an eye, not just your ear. I want two eyes. I want your focus on me throughout the session. And you'd be surprised at, at what that does for you in the long run, just as far as like what you teach him staying with the horse. Yeah. I mean, we talk a lot about the respect issue and in a lot of ways with a lot of horses, it's a conscious decision to turn away, show two heels and give the horse version of the middle finger, or at least to say, uh, yeah, what you're suggesting or what you're asking me to do, I'd rather not. How about, how about I just completely, like you, you said, it's like a little kid that just doesn't want to look at you and they just take their attention away. Uh, and a lot of times it is conscious disrespect that we deal with, but there is also something that we've noticed. And this has come up on the podcast is horses do things. And this is one of them that it's not really so much a lack of respect as, as it's a lack of consideration. I think that's probably the best term you could use to get people to, to think about that because, you know, it'd be nice to treat horses like dogs. But the reality is they're a thousand pounds, you know, they're, they're several times bigger than us and they have a lot of power and they can be quite dangerous. And like you said, Anna, before with the, even something as benign as cleaning a stall 
could potentially get dangerous if that horse just forgets that you're there or swings their butt into you or doesn't even mow you over but steps on your foot. I know a lot of people that have had their feet crushed by horses that simply the horse spaced out and forgot that there's a human being that's a lot more fragile in the vicinity uh, that they need to be mindful of and they just plow that person over or step on them and crunch on their toes. And that's never a good thing. And I, I think that's probably not only just respect, but just you want to make your horse considerate and attentive of your presence. And it's 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 like you're a, a delicate porcelain china doll that in their mind you're fragile and that they need to kind of watch their step around you so that they're not breaking you. You know, but a lot of people's horses are mindless in the sense that they have no consideration for that person's presence. Like, whether the human's there or not, the horse could really care less. Um, and that's not a good situation to be in because they're a thousand-pound animal. Like, we use that analogy to kind of exaggerate the point because a lot of people consider themselves, and this is partly due to just the way attitudes have changed about animals over time, is that people consider horses like big pets and telling people to think about the fact that, oh, you're, think of yourself as very fragile compared to this big, powerful animal. It's an important thing that draws the contrast in their minds that it's like, oh yeah, it's not that the animal's this helpless little victim that I've got to take care of. It's a thousand pound work animal that needs to be considerate of me as well. There's, there's the, there's limits there because there are cases where just out of pure disrespect, horses will run over people. And I'm talking conscious disrespect. Like the horse is actively trying to push you out of out of their space and push you around. And you need to make that very clear in the horse's mind that that is off limits and not an option. Um, we use a, like a common trainer saying all the time is horses don't know that you're not stronger than them unless you tell them so. And it's like you never want to be in a situation where you let a horse push you around and figure out, oh, you really are super weak. And if I just fight you, I can easily overpower you. Mm -hmm. So I guess that kind of porcelain doll analogy that's easily shatter, um, that's more for the human, I suppose. It's a, it's a good way to think about it, though, because that's effectively what you're telling the horse is like basically pushing into me, stepping on me, nudging me. Um, or even just having a lack of consideration and not paying attention to where I'm at, that is not an option when I'm around. When you're by yourself, as Luke pointed out, you've got 23 other hours in the day to be a horse and, and do whatever. But when I'm around you, I'm your most important focus point. It's kind of like in a, like a teaching or a mentorship situation. Um, if you're working with somebody, maybe it's just your boss that you work with every day. They are your number one priority when they're around you. But when you're off the clock, you can do whatever you want. It's kind of that that idea, I guess. Okay. Right. And I think it's, it's, you know, it's something we need to keep in mind. It's not out of the question to say, so you walk in the stall and to catch your horse. Like this was uh, um, something that I was almost numb to and if that it even was a thing. Um, going to you and I both, Jake, our first apprenticeships was a very horsemanship central facility. So when you go in to catch your horse, like he better be standing there in the stall, like two eyes, like, yes, sir, I'm ready to go work. You know, what mm -hmm. do you want to do today? That kind of an attitude. Well, then going over to a reigning barn, 
how you caught the horse, what you did on the ground, none of that mattered. It was all how did the horse ride. So you walk in the stall and immediately the thing does like a one and a, a plus one and a half rollback <laughs> to the back of the stall, <laughs> pins its ears flat against its neck and just cowers in the back corners with its butt towards you. You know, and you watch other people go catch the horses and they're, whoa, 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 as they like creep down the side of the stall and they try to, they try to get on one side and start to kind of push against the horse's butt into the wall so the horse doesn't try to turn and, and run the opposite way and kind of push them out of the way with their hips. You know, and you'd be amazed at how many people get smart about trying to catch a horse that as it's trying to like hide and, you know, do that little uh, denial uh, tactic that the horse will do where they just try to hide and pretend that they don't exist in the stall. But it's not ridiculous to say if you have that level of disrespect and attitude on the ground, that plays a part in how the full, the finished product under saddle. You plant a seed like that with that level of disrespect, that conscious disrespect in the stall, you are going to feel the ramifications under saddle. Now, it's going to come out in stiffness on the bridle or you know, leaping through the air on a lead change or running off on a style, like you won't equate it with catching in the stall, but it very much, make no mistake, it does play a part in your whole program as a whole, how you just start out your day, you know, because the old cliche saying is your horses are either getting better every day or they're getting worse. So just because you walk in the stall and they just, you know, they just turn away from you or they just stand there with their butt facing you and they don't even move. Okay, that may not be perceived as blatant disrespect, but guess what? That's where it starts. A horse that runs after somebody and chases them out of the pen and gets aggressive, they didn't just start, they didn't just come out of the womb like that. They didn't just all of a sudden flip the switch, you know, and they were just mean. It was a slow progression every day that you proved that you were not a capable leader. You didn't demand their respect because let's, let's, let's face it, horses as prey animals, they want a leader. They're trying to figure out, okay, who's the more dominant one in this, and the smarter one in the pack that's going to take us the best direction when the predator comes out here? They want a leader, and they would rather delegate that responsibility to someone more capable. You know, it's not like a power struggle like with human beings where you get resentful when you've got somebody above you. Horses want that because they feel safe. They're like the perfect employee that has like no ambition and they'll work at, you know, at McDonald's their whole career because they're just happy to know every day they've got that job and that paycheck. You know, that's kind of what we're talking about with horses here. But in that every day they're either getting better or they're getting worse. You walk in the stall and they're just standing there with their butt facing you or they just kind of quietly turn away from you and, and face you with their hind end. That was the seed right there. And it's going to slowly get worse and worse and worse until pretty soon they're cowering in the back corner and pinning their ears at you. And then when you go to like reach under and, and put the blankets on, they're taking a bite at you. And it just slowly progresses from there until now you've got a horse that you have to put kick chains on in the stall. You're walking by and it, you know, rears up and bears its teeth at, at everyone as you're trying to show customers horses. I mean, it just gets ugly quick. But it starts out with just a little bit here and a little bit there. Yeah, you and I have talked a lot about something more along the lines of setting the tone of your interactions. And it starts even when you go to catch them in the stall. I think that that consistency you have to have is important, or it at least makes your job easier. Let's put it that way. Like, if you never are, are changing the rules about how the interaction is supposed to go it creates a lot less doubt in the horse. There's a certainty there of what type of, I guess, behavior you expect. 
Like, think of the contrast between walking in the stall and the horse is immediately pinning ears and wheeling around, showing you two heels. Or the lack of consideration of going to bend down to put a blanket on, and the horse, meanwhile, is preoccupied with fighting with his homie in the next stall across, and you get accidentally in the way. Um, it wasn't a disrespect, but lack of consideration situation. Imagine if those rules are in play in one scenario, but then you're expecting this horse under saddle to do well-finessed maneuvers and absolutely be completely dialed in on what you want. And those seeds of doubt and disrespect and lack of consideration, as you said, it influences everything. You can overcome it to a degree. A lot of guys do, but it's like they're swimming upstream. If they had more consideration of what the other interactions are going on, because the horse doesn't draw a significant line between groundwork and saddle. All they really know is human interaction and how those go and what they're allowed to get away with. And everything relates to everything else. It's not, there's not clearly defined lines there. Yeah, and one more point to that as well is just the aspect of catching the horse. You know, when I go in the stall, I'm looking, I want that relationship with the horse where it's like a team type of a thing. I'm not doing all the pushing and pulling and driving and having to do all the legwork to, you know, you know, I don't want the horse to be like a, a resentful teenager that I have to literally go in there and nag them 15 different times to get up, you know, after the alarm has been hit on snooze like 50 times. And I want to have to drag them out of bed and force them to take a shower and force them to eat something and force them to put on some decent clothes and, you know, just everything, just going through the motions, like literally just carrying this human being around and they have no ambition to do anything for themselves. It's kind of the same thing here. When I walk in the stall, I want that horse to like, you know, be saying, hello, you know, what, what's going on? Are you ready to get to work? I don't want to be going in there and like, come on, get your ass going get out of bed. Let's We got stuff to do, you know, wake up, you know. So when I go in there, I want the horse to think of it as I want the horse to catch me. Okay, when I go in there with the halter, I don't. I shouldn't have to, you know, lunge the horse around or round pin them or drive them away or whatever. I want them to face me with two eyes and walk up to me. Well, how do I get that? Well, what most people do is, well, I want to catch the horse, so I'm going to go put the halter on his head, right? So they walk around his head. They do the sneak, the whoa, whoa, easy, precious. And they try to sneak up beside it and grab his face. Well, horses always want what the horses always know i guess what they want what you what they can't have but they also know what you want right so if they know that you want their head and you're going to catch their head what are they going to do they're going to give you their butt you didn't want that right <laughs> you wanted their head they knew that so they were going to take that away from you well when i see two heels what am i going to do drive it away you know now obviously i'm not going to just stand right next to it and slap him on the ass with my hand and risk getting kicked i mean you have to use our heads here you know if i'm going to drive the horse away i'm going to make sure i have an adequate distance if i need to say you know spank him on the top of the tail or something and drive his 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 hip away maybe it's just cluck stick, and, yeah yeah or maybe it's just cluck and you know with a make a little bit of a noise or a little energy with a lead rope how responsive he is but if i'm getting two heels Instead of trying, and his head is away from me, instead of going to his face and trying to catch his face, I'm going to drive his hip away. I'm going to actively put pressure on his hip and act like I want to catch his hip. And in doing so, what is he going to do? He's going to give me, what? His head. Why? Because I was wanting, in his mind, I was wanting his hip. And so he took that away from me and gave me 
his head instead. And it's kind of that, that dynamic is what we're looking for. I want the horse to catch me. I want him to willfully give me the two eyes rather than me have to try to sneak up and take them from him. Okay, so let have our horses, you know, catch us instead of um, us going out and catching them. And it really, what it comes down to as well, aside from the respect or how that what they retain in a lesson, it's just an annoying thing to deal with. I mean, it's one of my pet peeves dealing with horses is a horse that pins their ears and turns their butt to you in the stall, hmm. you know, or a horse that you're doing groundwork with, you try to lunge it, and what do they do? They, instead of turning and going on the circle, they try to turn and just give you two heels and run off, you know, and it's just a pet peeve. It's not something, you know, it's like a coworker that is in the cubicle next to you that's just a grump, and all day you have to listen to them whine and moan and complain, you know, about every little thing, and the computer does something, and you just hear a, from the other cubicle and you just know that when you hear that groan that okay you're about to hear another 30 minutes of how you know steve jobs ripped you off in some different way (laughs) this is oddly specific right now (laughs) (laughs) i mean i don't i don't feel being called out or anything but it just it just gets old and it's not something it's not something that i want to walk in a barn and deal with i don't want to you know, especially if it's like, you know, I'm showing a, a client around, you know, they, and we walk down the stall and here I've got a bunch of, a bunch of, you know, the horses in training that are just cowering in the back with this grumpy look on their face, showing me their hind end. You know, it's just, it's just at the end of the day, it's just not a good look. And it's just, it just makes life a lot more difficult when you have to just tiptoe around horses, you know, instead of learning how to be a master tiptoer, let's just get our horses respect and make life easier and just eliminate that just bad look. We can't have our horses complaining about Steve Jobs. <laughs> exactly. No, <laughs> we'll do plenty of that for them. Exactly. I did want to bring up, it's funny you mentioned the whole, you know, showing a client around the barn thing. That's, um, if people are, are listening to this and they haven't ever heard of uh, Caitlin Hurst's podcast, Finding the Feel, where she interviews trainers. We were a guest on there. She's put out a lot of good episodes lately. One, um, I think she was interviewing Sandy Collier, and that was literally something she brought up. And I can, I've been racking my brain, and I can think of a dozen scenarios in which um, buying decisions were made because people walked down the barn and the horse either came to them with a positive expression or pinned and turned away instantly. Oh, yeah. Like, you would be surprised. like So what? many people. Yes. That's like a make or break thing. Oh, there will be. I mean, I've there's this is no joke. This is literally a horse. It was a weanling. Out in the pasture with a bunch of other weanlings. And no, no, it wasn't even a weanling. It was still, it was like, there was a bunch of uh, of pairs of mares and babies. I think there's like six of them out in the pasture together, right? And uh, six pairs. And this client is out there looking at, at these horses. And this one really, really friendly little filly, uh, Butter was her name. And this one really, really f- friendly little filly. Um, she goes like jogging up, just all curious and with this little cute look on her face. She goes jogging up to this lady who is looking to buy a Rainer, you know, to compete something that she can own and can compete with. She's looking for a high end performance horse. This one goes jogging up to her and uh, kind of gives her a little bit of sniff and then kind of runs and you know bucks around and just plays and then it's kind of like circling around her and the other people that were on the pasture. She was like really curious type of a filly, anyways. Well, immediately, you know, 
after they got done with looking at the horses, they went back to the office to kind of actually hash out the business stuff. And I kid you not, that was the one that she picked. And she said that she thought, in her professional opinion, that it was going to be a really talented horse and was going was her top fertility pick when it matured and, and was a three-year-old. All because it just walked up to her in the pasture and sniffed her. Now, you know, at the end of the day, it never went anywhere. But, <laughs> we won't talk about that. Yes, but she was she was convinced that it was just you know over the moon talented, all and all the, everything you know like that horse became her prized possession all off of just that. You know, so don't underestimate what the impression that makes, especially if you're. You know, have a barn full of horses, and you're looking to to sell or trade, or, or you know, you're flipping horses, or, or you have a performance horse barn, or whatever. I mean, that's don't overlook that that fact. Yeah, well, just this will be the final thing. Then I promise we'll move on. But <laughs> one of our mentors had said that he actually experimented because he hates groundwork as much as we do. I mean, we do it because it's necessary. <laughs> but j- just let me put it this way. Even those of us that make it a central core of our program hate it because it gets very monotonous. Um, but it's extremely crucial. One of our mentors felt exactly the same way. He's known for his extremely in-depth groundwork program. But he actually experimented one time as just a, just a horse trainer. Um, how would it work if I just didn't do any groundwork with my horses, like just did enough to get on and then just rode the crap out of them from that point on. And he ha- he ended up having happened to him what happens at most performance horse barns where that's the program. You literally do enough groundwork to get in the saddle and then just ride is that the horses are, become such scumbags to deal with on the ground. Just, you know, super just disagreeable, disrespectful, no respect, won't lead, pushy, you name it. Like being around them is a chore and just a real negative experience. And just from a convenience perspective of, you know, if you've got a lot of horses to work through every day, you don't want to spend a lot of time fighting these issues day in and day out of horses that don't want to be sprayed off. They're bad to saddle. They won't lead. All that stuff is really annoying and wastes time. Oh, yeah. And you know what's hilarious about it is that when you when you let a horse get away with that, especially at more of the barns that don't put any any emphasis on the groundwork and they only care about how it rides, they you <laughs> you enter into this twilight zone where you no longer are what you could call a horseman and you are what I would call a ballerina. Because you are a master at just tiptoeing around problems. And I have I, I was literally impressed. Like I I going to different riding barns, I thought I had a good grasp of problem solving. Phew. I didn't know anything compared to some of the ways that they were able to tiptoe around stuff. I mean, there were so many, you know, quote unquote hacks that I saw um, you know, to get different things done, whether it was bathing, clipping, um, ice boots. You know, a theraplate, you name it, like the different and methods to get it done. I mean, it was it was an education. You got to have a lot of tricks up your sleeve and a few gallons of SETIVET in the fridge. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> that never hurts. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so kind of continuing on with sort of the behavior and psychology theme, Anna, you brought up another subject, which was that something that does throw people for a loop, especially when they're learning the ropes of horsemanship, because horses are diametrically the opposite of our psychology. 
um, how most people interact with a dog or a cat, let's say, in terms of like reward and bonding, like the horse, it's a completely different perspective, completely different program. Yeah, it was it was interesting for me to see that because kind of like you mentioned earlier, Jake, people's attitudes about animals have changed and they see a horse like a big pet. And the reality is, you know, they're not. They're a work animal and they can hurt you. So you have to approach it differently than you would approach a 150-pound dog. And also that, like what you guys mentioned, the psychology of horses is different because they're prey animals. And dogs, on the other hand, are not. They're, you know, they're kind of completely different psychology. And so something that really struck me when I was learning about you know, rewarding your horse is when you're training a dog and the dog does something good, you know, oh, it's all good boy, give him a treat, rub him, you know, love on him. But what you guys have told me is when your horse does well, leave him alone, give him space. And that's rewarding him. Just just letting him alone and letting him have his own little space there. Don't rub on him. Don't kiss him. Don't give him treats. Just leave him be. And that just didn't make sense to me. But <laughs> yeah, it's funny that even the best-minded horses interpret human interaction and cues as almost exerting mental pressure. Like, just your presence as a predator, which they know you're a predator, and you are, you know, over time you do develop a bond in the sense that you develop a kind of a respectful working partnership. But, you, you know, you're still got diametrically opposed outlooks on life. We get along with dogs so well, they're man's best friend for a reason, is because we relate to dogs so well, um, whereas horses are the exact opposite. We did do a podcast on this where we threw in the odd analogy of elephant training. <laughs> I don't know why I brought that up, um, but, but we did talk a lot about dog versus horse psychology too. And yeah, it's funny, like, it's, it's difficult. I, I would say this. If you establish a relationship with a horse on the right foot, then over time you can become more bonded in terms of love and on him and everything else. And I'm not saying we don't do that. Um, you know, we're, we're big softies as well. People tend to see only the tough trainer side, but we do have a soft spot for our ponies. It's that they have to earn it though, and we also need to have the green light to where we know we have their respect they're quiet to be around us. Um, a lot of people don't have those things established, and then they get into trouble because humans, we want to be real touchy-feely and be kind of in each other's space. You look at other predators like cats, always you know dozing in piles, and <laughs> dogs want to be real close to you. I mean, predators are like that. We want to group up, bunch up together. You think about when humans get together and <clears throat> have dinners or parties or whatever, Everyone's interacting. That's how we feel comfortable. If we're isolated, that's that really tricks with our mind. But if you watch horses interact, unless there's a problem or there's kind of a, a pecking order struggle going on or sort of a mutual curiosity or grooming type thing, and that happens rarely. Um, other than that, what are horses doing mainly? Just keeping their head down, heads down grazing and kind of standing apart from each other in groups, you know, like you watch them at their most relaxed state, they leave each other alone for the most part. Not saying they never come into contact, but they just kind of like not having pressure and and having um energy being directed their way. 
And when we're around them, like it or not, we're, we're always kind of radiating. Um, I hesitate to call it stress, but that's kind of like what it is. Like, think about if you go to a party with your boss, let's say, and you don't have that personal friendship level, but you are friendly. But with when that person is around, can you, you know, most people, at least in the presence of their boss, don't feel like they can truly relax and be themselves. Heck no. <laughs> you know what I mean? And that's kind of like a horse relates to us in the sense that even if we do have that leadership role established, us just being there, being touchy-feely and interacting with them kind of exerts a sort of pressure. Whereas being left completely alone, that is like the horse's ideal world. That's his dream is to just not have any worries whatsoever. We talk a lot about the, the horse's ultimate dream of being in a Kentucky bluegrass field as far as the eye can see. So there's no possible predators. It's a completely flat lawn that goes on to an infinity, completely open space. He can run, he can see anybody approaching, and he's, he's just completely got nothing potentially dangerous or stressful or anything interacting with him. That's like the horse's ideal world. And it's so tough for us to grasp because we think that physical affection is the answer a lot of times with animals. And we see the results of when that gets taken too far. People try to win horses over with a lot of physical affection and things like that, but they don't have that respect established. And the horse not only doesn't like you, they resent your very presence after a while because you being there stresses them out and they don't like you. You're not their leader. You're a liability. You even being around them, they're like, oh, get away from me. You know, like, yeah, yeah. Um, like siblings. <laughs> kind of, it's, it's kind of like a, yeah, it's like a dysfunctional dynamic or like some creepy guy at the mall that like comes up and wants to talk your ear off and you can't get away from. It's kind of, that's how the horse looks at, looks at the human in that way. And, you know, when you tell people that it's hard for them to grasp, but if you understand that and you understand that horses need like a complete release of pressure, especially if they get a big win, you have a breakthrough, they do something right. Just give them a complete release of pressure. Leave them alone. Let them soak on it. Let them think about it. I actually had another question that I was thinking about when you guys were talking and um, we were talking about, you know, yielding the horse's hindquarters and getting their respect. Something that was really difficult for me to grasp as a newcomer was the amount of pressure that we have to use on horses to get them to move sometimes and to get our point across. And I think that kind of going back to the whole, you know, oh, they're a big fluffy pet. They're not a thousand pound animal that could stomp me. We're hesitant to use the pressure necessary to get them to move and to show them that we are in control of the situation, that we are the boss. And at the confidence clinic that you guys did recently that I participated in, um, I remember you guys were yelling at people like, whack, whack the clip on the bridle or, you know, jerk the lead rope or, you know, you guys are tickling them. You're not giving the right amount of pressure. And <laughs> that was just, I don't know, like the, the amount of pressure that we have to put on a horse, I don't think to get our point across. I don't think people realize how great that has to be because these animals, I mean, in the wild, they fight and kick and bite each other all the time and that's normal. And so it's almost like nothing we could do with our little handy stick or whatever could even come close to what they would do to each other in the wild, right? Right. Well, it's, you know, as far as pressure is concerned, it's like you start out with the lightest, like we want our horses to be super responsive off of a light, light pressure. 
you know, and it's not like they're not capable of doing that. You know, a horse, you know, a fly lands on your horse's butt and it like drives them nuts, you know, and they can feel that. They can sure as heck feel like you tapping them with a training stick or something like that um, or, or wiggling the lead rope. We want our horses to be responsive to that light pressure. But the only way to do that is to start out with that very light, light pressure. Like if we start out with, say, 10 pounds of pressure already, you know, or we whack the lead rope, say, on a scale of 1 to 10 as far as how hard we whack the rope. If we already start with 5, just whacking the rope right away. Well, that's all the lighter that horse will ever be. Any less pressure than that, and he won't respond. So if we want our horse to be like a 1, where we just wiggle our finger and the horse backs up, then we need to start there. And then we slowly, incrementally build. We don't just go finger and then whack him across the nose and give him no chance to think or no chance to, to uh, understand what's going on. We start out with wiggling our finger, and then we may jiggle the rope, and then we jiggle a little harder, and then we like crisscross and wave the rope, and we just slowly build through those levels of pressure with rhythm so that we ask very, very gently, and then tell a little more, then tell a little bit more, tell a little bit more, until we find the level of pressure necessary to motivate our horse to find the answer. So, yes, people have to realize that there may come a time where you have to put a high level of pressure on your horse. And most people never are able to grasp that initially. Like, you know, the confidence clinic was good because everyone there, when the, by the time they were done with it, they had a much, like we raised their bar as far as what level of pressure they could apply to their horse. We raised it like times 10, you know, where the horses were just kind of falling asleep and taking advantage of what they were doing. And what they thought was a high level of pressure was actually like a level two, level three, somewhere in there. But we also had to refine how they started with their pressure because most of the people that were only raising their their level to about three, they were starting with like a level three already. You know, like there was nowhere to go. They were, you know, they, they didn't want to raise the pressure any, but they were also starting out like waving the stick really wild and jiggling the lead rope really aggressively. Like they started out super high. And that gets into the second point about it is... Yes, we have to sometimes raise the pressure and get aggressive with our horses. And like the old saying, we have to do what we have to do to get the job done. And we'll do that as easy as possible. But make no mistake, we will be as firm as necessary. And when the horse finds the answer, we'll release. But it is, it's also important to note that, and this varies breed by breed, but as a general rule, horses aren't born that way to where they're just dulled to pressure. It's something that's kind of like something that's created over time with the people that are working with the horses as a general rule, you know, a horse that is super, super dull and you have to whack the clip really aggressively with your training stick. Um, they'll still be super, super aggravated about a fly that landed on their leg. Like, well, how could it be one, so dull to one thing and so hypersensitive to another? Well, you kind of, you taught your horse to be that dull to that level of pressure. You basically, you like, we desensitize our horse to different objects you basically taught the horse to ignore you waving your training stick and, you know, freak out about a fly on his leg. It's not like the horse was just born that dull to the pressure. Horses naturally, you know, are sensitive to anything that moves, makes a noise. You know, that creates pressure. They're naturally sensitive to that. But over time and just not being clear and black and white with our signals, not asking very gently, but also assert being assertive as as is necessary raising the pressure to the level we needed to 
we just kind of taught the horse over time to just get duller and duller and duller. And then in the only way to, to fix that situation is to raise the pressure higher than he, than he is, he is used to experiencing until, until we get the, the reaction we need. And then we release the pressure. It's not the pressure itself that, you know, makes the horse do anything. A lot of people, especially the more kind of tree hugging natural horsemanship crowd likes to say, Oh, look at that. You're just beating on your horse to make it do stuff. It's like, no, the whole idea of pressure all we use pressure for is to motivate the horse to look for the answer. If he looks for the wrong answer, I'm not. Let's say I put pressure on the horse, and he and I want him to back up, and I'm whacking the 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 lead rope with my training stick, and he's standing still, standing still, and then he runs sideways. Well, now that he's he's not backing up, he did move. He was uncomfortable, and that pressure made him uncomfortable to where he moved. So, do I then? Use more pressure since he moved the wrong way? No. I, I've used the pressure to motivate him to look for an answer. He chose an option. It was the wrong one. But guess what? He was motivated to look. And so what am I going to do? I found the level of pressure that was enough to motivate him to look. So I'll just maintain that pressure until what? Until he stops running sideways. He may run the other way. He may try to stop again. And then he'll back up. And then what I do? I release the pressure. And we teach him through the release of the pressure... Not the pressure his, itself. And the faster we release the pressure when the horse finds the right answer, the quicker he'll learn it. You know, if we're super slow about it, we just teach the horse that, oh, well, there really wasn't, you know, that much, you know, much of a benefit to, to doing what you wanted because you still whacked the clip like five more times before you found that I was doing the right thing. You know, so again, it's the, the pressure just motivates the horse to find the answer. And increasing the pressure and being more, quote unquote, aggressive that's just a matter of as long as as long as you started with the lightest amount of pressure possible and you were increasing it with rhythm, you were slowly increasing and adding more pressure because the horse was was ignoring you, then you're on the right track and you just slowly build that pressure till you find that level that motivates the horse to look for an answer. It may not be the right one at first, but he'll at least look, try for you. And then when he does find that answer, you want to release that pressure. You know, it's funny using that backup exercise as an analogy ties into what we were talking about earlier about a f complete release of pressure. That's a nice little red pill for people to swallow is that a lot of the training DVDs out there, uh, you know, that especially the ones that really go into the groundwork, exercises like backing, they make a big deal of when you release the pressure, you know, rub the horse, blah, blah, blah. A lot of that is literally put in specifically to make people feel not as bad about having to whack on their horse. Mm. But we've even been told in the past that, you know, actually what you want is a complete release of pressure. And I think that's that's part of the learning curve, not just getting your feel and timing better and knowing when to apply pressure, when, you know, whacking a horse is necessary versus when not. And the trouble too is, you know, people that come to us with horses that are dull and have been in habits of dullness and ignoring humans for all their lives, they, they can't go from like a 2 on the level of pressure to a 10 because their 10 is still super ineffective. They have to go to like a 20 so that the ask at 2 or 1 actually means something again. And the process of going through that makes a lot of people feel uncomfortable. But you just have to remember, like if you do have to whack a horse to motivate him to move his feet or things of that nature... You know, a lot of people are, they do that. They'll, they'll follow our instruction. They're like, okay, I don't want to do it, but Fluffy, you need to move. And then they spank or they whack. 
and the horse does hustle and respond, and we yell, release! And then they're standing there biting their lip like, I'm sorry, you know? <laughs> like, they, they're, like, apologizing for having to use the amount of motivation and pressure necessary to get something done. But you're only hindering yourself in the long run. Um, that's one of the tough things about our job is that we're, we're meeting horses that need to over-index on the pressure in order to find that center again where you can finally ease off and refine and not have to ask so forcefully. But people only see the learning stage of that process and they think it's super aggressive when in reality we try to be super methodical. But you can't let... Again, you can't let humans' feelings get in the way. That's a very good example of where all the horse wants to do in that situation, when he f discovers the right door, when he found the right answer, and in your exercise analogy, Luke, when, he, when his feet unlock and he backs up, leave him alone. Like, that's what he wants, is to just be left alone. Release the pressure. Rather than dribble down to a stop and rub on him and annoy him some more, you let him know that he did a good job by giving him a complete release. And that not only you being consistent in, in the way you apply pressure, but then consistent in that release and giving him that complete reward, that's what actually builds confidence. That's the, that's the weird, twisted thing that people don't get right off the bat, is that's what builds confidence in a horse. They want an effective leader like that. If you're a ninny, or <laughs> if you're constantly trying to placate things and never be effective, they actually resent you more. It's so weird. Being super nice to a horse is the quickest way to get them not like you, unfortunately. Now, it's not how dogs or cats... Well, cats just don't like us to begin <laughs> cats with. Cats hate everybody. But, um, <laughs> but, you know, that's how you get to a dog is you give them food, treats, you interact with them, you love on them. Horses, if you primarily do that as your main play to try to get inside their head and develop a relationship with them, you'll end up getting the opposite. You'll get resentment. Yeah, so you get there with a horse, you get the respect first. Then you can come back and do all the lovey-dovey and the treats and blah, blah, blah. Like the way I look at it, especially the backing, it's important to realize too that after you release, just letting them sit there and just giving them a chance to think and like soak, that you're letting the horse rest and have that release of pressure where? Out of your personal space. So when he backed away from you, he backed out of your space and got basically away from you by backing up he's left alone and he gets that release of pressure and so that's like aha you know now the wheels are turning now if you just walk in there and rub his face now you've just encroached your personal space upon him again and now where is that where is that release of pressure now you're back fogging his glasses up again and there's no you're not really instilling that motivation to say hey when you back out of my space and out away from me you get a release of pressure and it ends up hurting your backing because every time that you go make a good effective correction, you basically wipe it away by walking back up to your horse and rubbing him in the face. You know, and the way I look at it as well is like, imagine that you're like a marathon runner and it's a hot summer day and you just ran like a half marathon and, or let's say you're running it. And then every time you get to like a checkpoint where they're like giving out water on the side of the, of the road or something, every time someone hands you a cup of water, they like, they, you know, they grab you and like hug you and they're telling you what a great job you're doing and blah, blah, blah. And they're like breathing their hot breath in your face and you're all sweaty and you're like, what do you want to do? You want to like push them away from you. Like get off of me. I, I need to just drink this water and just, just try to breathe. 
you know, then you get to the finish line, you're standing there and you got a, a crowd of people like swarming you, you know, and just hovering over you trying to tell you good job, congratulations. And what are you going to do? You're going to try and like step back and like keep them at arm's length. Why? So you can just get some space to just catch your air. You don't want all these people. You're hot and sweaty and tired. You don't want all these people crowd just swarming around you. It's kind of the same thing with our horse. They don't like just, you know, having us fogging their glasses up, just being on top of them. Yes, at some point that is that is beneficial. And there comes a point in our training where once we've established our horse's respect on the ground and under saddle enough, like usually if you're disciplined about it, usually around the five to six month mark, there comes a very distinct point in the training where if you continue that drill sergeant mentality of only focusing on their respect, then the horse will start getting kind of resentful and bitter about their job. But if you start off in the beginning of the training session trying to be all lovey-dovey and, and try to win their heart over in the beginning, they get much more resentful about their job much quicker. It's kind of like if you, even if you broke it down into two different parts of your training, like you trained a horse for a year. And you did six months of just respect, 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 and no, no touchy-feely. And then after that, the last six months of your training, you did all the touchy-touchy-feely. You'd, you'd be in much better shape than if you did any of the other two just by themselves. But there comes a point in our training where, and we just say it with caution because people kind of, they take it overboard and they do too much of the lovey-dovey and not enough of the move your feet, get your respect. But you want to have a nice balance. And I mean, that's, you know, even in our horses that they're like green colts and not very respectful, they don't know what's going on. I mean, we're still going to, you know, tend to them and, and brush on them and curry them really good and give them, you know, a little petting here and there, you know, always. You know, when we go catch them in the stall, we'll give them a little bit of petting, spend some, spend some you know, quality time with them. We want to be their, their friend, yes. But we're not going to be every single time they find the right answer, just, just fawning over how great they're doing and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But if we, especially like with the performance horses, even so, um, after about that six month mark, we have to really make a conscious effort to also really make sure we, we spend our, our time with that, that friendly time, so to speak, because it does become a very important part of the program, especially with a horse that knows the rules and you can kind of start cheating and relaxing because you've just established um, so much that they, you are the leader and it's just kind of become routine. But again, every now and then you'll have to check in on that. But we just have to make sure we realize it's a foundation built on respect first. And then that respect will allow you to kind of feel your human desire to be all lovey-dovey. And the horse will be receptive to that. And they'll enjoy it only when once they're respectful and they respect you as the leader. Then it's like a nice little bonus. But in the beginning, and you're just, you're just showering them with treats and with petting, you know, they're like, a, again, going back to a teenager analogy. They're like a teenager that just gets money to buy whatever clothes they want and go out to whatever parties and they get this car and that car pretty soon what is it it's expected now and then they no longer appreciate it and then pretty soon they're resentful about it now you won't you, know, you couldn't afford to buy their gas this one time and now they're like cussing you out that you couldn't buy their gas well it all started with a little thing here a little there build the relationship on respect first with our horses then we can come back later on and have a nice nice balance of the two all those years of playing with my little pony was a lie. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's the unfortunate part about learning more about horses is you realize the Disney movies, they lied. Black Beauty Misty of was a lie. I mean, it's, it is tough. It is tough. But, um, but yeah, but I think some good ground was covered here. I like 
the fact that, you know, at times we, we try to get back to our roots and talk about Horsemanship 101, basic psychology angles, and these are some, yes, on the surface basic, but actually very important things psychology-wise, training-wise, that need to be said and need to be put out there. Yeah, and I hope that with this Q&A format having Anna here, she can bring a lot more insights to different areas that, I mean, let's just face it, especially even listeners to the podcast even that may not be, you know, aspiring professionals themselves and they're maybe just trail riders, whatever, but they've been in the industry um, they've been around horses a long time, but there's a lot of things that you just take for granted, mm-hmm. right? And so it kind of, the, hopefully this Q&A will bring a, a fresh perspective and allow us to, kind of, you know, we can kind of get put on the spot a little bit and have to go into different areas, down different rabbit holes that we ordinarily would not have done because it would have been a subject that we would have just kind of taken for granted. Absolutely. So I think this is a good time to throw in a little right hook here and ask for questions, you know, we'll be putting this on Facebook, obviously, or at least the links to the full audio. And we want to start having Q&A every week. Um, Some of these will be recorded. We do have the desire to do live Q&As. That's still in the books. We just haven't made it happen quite yet. But we want to take questions, even, you know, a lot of people that don't submit things publicly to us will private message different topics because, you know, they, they might feel embarrassed to bring something up or whatever. So whether it's publicly in the comments below or you private message us a question, you know, we, we'd be glad to talk about it on the, on the podcast. We'd be glad to place it here as like a Rosetta Stone type issue where, you know, it's a question on a specific thing, but we break it apart and interpret it. Anna throws in her commentary and questions. I think this will be a really productive format. So I want to invite people to send us those questions and comments. Give us your feedback on what you thought. Um, Check out the podcast. Subscribe. Like it if you haven't already, or I will cry. Um, (laughs) I'll cry, and you do not want that. That That's not pretty. I'm glad I'm not on camera right now. But anyway, thank you guys very much for joining us. Um, Until next time. Thank you for listening to the Project Horse Podcast. If you enjoyed it, be sure to subscribe and give us a five-star rating to help more horsemen like you find our content. You can also check out the Lundahl Performance Facebook page. There you can message us with any questions or training topics you want covered on the show. You can also learn about our training program, clinics, lessons, and the consulting we do for horse owners across the United States and abroad. Thanks again for listening. 